This is Guns and Butter. of a, a military conquest is to take control of a foreign economy, uh, to take control of its lands, and to impose tribute uh, on uh, the defeated country. Uh, the genius of the World Bank is to say, we don't have to occupy and take over a country in order to impose tribute, in order to take over its industry and its agriculture and its land. Uh, instead of bullets, we can use financial manipulation and maneuvering uh, as long as other countries play a game that we can control. Uh, finance can do today what it used to take bombs and uh, loss of life uh, by uh, our soldiers uh, to do. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, the IMF and World Bank, Partners in Backwardness. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst, and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His most recent books include Lending, Foreclosure, and Redemption from Bronze Age Finance to the Jubilee Year, Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Destroy the Global Economy, and J is for Junk Economics. A Guide to Reality in an Age of Deception. He is also author of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, among many other books. We return today to a discussion of Dr. Hudson's seminal 1972 book, Superimperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank, with a special emphasis on food imperialism. Michael Hudson, welcome back. Well, it's good to be back, Bonnie. In your seminal work from 1972, Super-Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, you write that the development lending of the World Bank has been dysfunctional from the outset. When was the World Bank set up and by whom? Well, it was set up basically by the United States in uh, 1944, along with its sister institution, the International Monetary Fund. And uh, the purpose uh, was ostensibly to create an international order, uh, but an international order that was more like a funnel uh, that would make other countries dependent on the United States. Uh, the United States wanted to be sure that uh, no other country or group of countries, even if all the rest of the world ganged up on the United States, the United United States wanted the ability to veto any uh, action by the World Bank or any action by the uh, International Monetary Fund by having veto power in it so that it could make sure that uh, any policy was, uh, in Donald Trump's words, uh, we've got to win and uh, they've got to lose. Uh, the World Bank from the outset was set up essentially as a branch of the uh, uh, military, of the Defense Department. Uh, John J. McCloy, who'd uh, negotiated the end of World War II, was uh, the uh, first full-time uh, president. He later became head of uh, Chase Manhattan Bank. And uh, McNamara, another Defense Department uh, person, was in charge of it. And then uh, uh, the recent uh, heads have all been either uh, Defense Department heads or uh, uh, clients 
of uh, the Defense Department. So I think you can uh, look at the World Bank always as uh, the the presumably soft uh, imperialist shoe of uh, American diplomacy. What is the difference between the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, or is there a difference? Yes, there there is a difference. Uh, the World Bank uh, was supposed to uh, make loans for uh, what they call international development. Development was their euphemism for dependency. Uh, the World Bank was supposed to provide infrastructure loans uh, that other countries would go into debt uh, to American engineering firms for to build up their export sectors and their plantation sectors. Uh, so there would be uh, roads. Uh, port development uh, for imports and exports. Uh, essentially, they would uh, make long-term capital investments in the uh, foreign trade sector. Uh, the IMF was in charge of uh, foreign currencies. The uh, aim of the IMF uh, was quite explicitly to prevent uh, any country from imposing capital controls to protect its balance of payments. Uh, many countries had a dual exchange rate, one exchange rate for uh, trade and goods and services, the other exchange rate for capital movements. Uh, the function of the IMF was essentially to make other countries uh, borrow not in their own currencies but in dollars and to, uh, to make sure that if countries could not pay their dollar-denominated debts, uh, they had to impose austerity. And uh, the IMF developed a plan saying any country uh, can pay any amount of debt to the creditors if it just impoverishes uh, its labor enough. And so whenever countries were uh, unable to uh, pay their debt service, the IMF would tell them to raise the interest rate, to uh, bring on a uh, business cycle depression, and uh, to break up the labor unions, which was called rationalizing the labor force. Uh, the rationalizing was essentially to uh, take away uh, any ability of uh, labor unions or uh, the public sector, and uh, to prevent countries from uh, essentially following the line of development that had made the United States rich by uh, public subsidy of agriculture, uh, public subsidy of uh, industry, uh, an active government sector. Uh, the IMF was essentially promoting and forcing other countries to balance their uh, trade deficits by letting uh, Americans, uh, investors, and other investors buy control of their commanding heights, uh, mainly their infrastructure uh, monopolies. Now, Michael, when you first began speaking about the IMF and monetary controls, um, you mentioned that there were two rates of currencies in countries. What were you referring to? Well, when I went to uh, work on Wall Street in the 60s, uh, I was balance of payments economist for Chase Manhattan, and uh, we would uh, look at, we used the IMF uh, international financial statistics, and at the very top of each country, there would be the exchange rate, and the uh, countries would have two exchange rates, one exchange rate, which was set normally by the market for uh, goods and services, but then a, uh, a different exchange rate that was uh, uh, managed uh, for international capital movements, and that was because countries were trying to prevent capital flight of their, uh, uh, that is, they didn't want the wealthy classes 
to uh, essentially make a run on their own currency, which is something that happened continually in Latin America. Uh, the IMF and the World Bank both uh, backed the uh, cosmopolitan classes, the, uh, 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 the wealthy classes, and uh, essentially, uh, instead of having countries uh, control their capital outflows and prevent uh, capital flights, uh, the IMF said, well, uh, our job is to protect uh, the richest uh, 1% of every country. So when a country's having a trouble uh, in a, a balance of payments problem, when it's trade deficit that uh, the World Bank has uh, sort of steered them into and American diplomacy has steered them into, when that's uh, creating a currency crisis, we have to let the rich people get their money out of the country uh, in a hurry. So we're going to make a loan to Argentina or Brazil or whatever country to support the currency until all of the wealthy uh, people have moved their money out of domestic currencies into the dollar or into hard currencies, and then we'll let the currency collapse after the rich people have gotten out. The, the currency will collapse, but since the debts that these countries, uh, Latin American countries, owe are in dollars, they now have to pay twice or even three times as much. We're talking about 100% interest rates uh, in domestic currency for these countries uh, to pay basically to subsidize uh, capital flight. So when you have a hyperinflation, as uh, Chile had, for instance, early on, uh, all hyperinflations of Latin America, just like uh, Germany after World War I, come from trying to pay foreign debts beyond the ability to be paid. Now, uh, a real international monetary fund uh, that was trying to help countries develop would have said, okay, uh, banks and, and we, the IMF, uh, have made bad loans to the country. We've made loans that the country can't pay, so we're going to have to write down the loans to the ability to be paid. That's what happened in 1931 when finally uh, the world uh, stopped uh, German reparations payments and uh, uh, inter-allied debt stemming from World War One. Well, the IMF said, we want to prevent any move by other countries to bring the debt uh, volume within the ability to be paid. We want to use debt as essentially uh, America would use its military power. We want to use debt and credit as a means of controlling the lifeline of other countries. So if countries do something that we don't approve of, we can simply make a run on their currency. We can uh, pull the plug uh, financially, just as the United States has uh, recently threatened to do uh, to Russia and uh, China if they uh, act independently of the United States or uh, simply don't uh, follow orders. So from the very beginning, this control uh, by the U.S. banking system was uh, built into the world system by the IMF and the World Bank, claiming to be international instead of an expression of American nationalism. Well, now, how does exchange rates contribute to capital flight? Uh, it's not the exchange rate that contributes. Suppose that uh, you're a, uh, a millionaire, and you see that the country's uh, unable to uh, run a, uh, a trade balance and a balance of payments surplus. The question is, your, your money that you're uh, dealing with is in uh, pesos or escudos or uh, cruzeros or some domestic money. Uh, and you say, wait a minute, all of a sudden, uh, 
our currency is going to go down and down relative to the dollar and the, or the German mark or the Swiss franc in times past. And uh, we want to get our money out of the country to preserve our currency, uh, our own purchasing power. For instance, in uh, 1990, the Latin American countries had defaulted so much in the wake of the uh, Mexico uh, defaults in 1982 that uh, I was at Scudder Stevens and uh, they started a third world bond fund uh, that I was asked to put together. And uh, at the time, uh, Argentina and Brazil were running such serious balance of payments deficits that they were paying 45% per year interest in dollars on their dollar loans. Mexico, on its Teso bonos, was paying 22.5%. So, uh, you know, uh, Scudder's uh, salesman went around to the United States and said, look, we can make a huge amount of money, 45%. No Americans uh, would, would buy it. They sent their salesmen to Europe. I think Merrill Lynch was the uh, underwriter for the fund. Merrill Lynch went to Europe. They said, no, no, we've all lost our shirts. On, uh, these countries can't pay. So uh, finally, Merrill Lynch office in uh, Brazil and in uh, Argentina uh, tried to uh, sell up these bonds in an offshore fund uh, established in the Dutch uh, West Indies, I think, in Surin, uh, I'm not sure exactly which Dutch West Indies. Uh, so it was an offshore fund, so Americans uh, were not able to buy it. But who, who bought all these bonds? Uh, <laughs> the Brazilians... Uh, uh, and the Argentinian rich families who were very close to the central bank and the president. Uh, and it was obvious that they were buying these uh, funds because they knew that they were going to pay these bonds that were being issued because the bonds were owed to themselves, even though they were in dollars. And we realized that uh, what happened was that uh, these Yankee dollar bonds were really uh, bought by uh, Brazilian, by Latin Americans, who were moving their money out of their own currency that was going down uh, to buy bonds denominated in dollars, uh, which were going up. And the more the currency went down, uh, the local currency went down, uh, the higher the dollar value was worth. It's very much like uh, gold going up after uh, uh, the United States went off gold in 1971. Uh, the dollar was an appreciating asset relative to the uh, Latin American uh, and other currencies that were in trouble and uh, simply limping along. So the idea of the wealthy families was to make money essentially by uh, currency speculation. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, the IMF and World Bank, Partners in Backwardness. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, if the wealthy families from these countries bought these bonds uh, denominated in dollars, knowing that they were going to be paid off, who was going to be paying them off? The country that was going broke? Yes. Well, countries don't pay. Uh, the, uh, the taxpayers pay, in this case, labor pays. And so uh, the IMF said, well, uh, the country can't pay. It's in trouble. We certainly don't want the rich people to have to pay. Uh, we want uh, the workers to pay. So uh, the way that you can afford to pay this uh, enormously growing uh, dollar-denominated debt in your currency is uh, to lower wages even more. Uh, there's no 
no limit to which you cannot lower labor's wages by enough to make it uh, appealing for them to export. So, in other words, the IMF and World Bank deliberately used junk economics to pretend that uh, the way to balance the payments of money due to the wealthiest uh, 1% or 2% was to lower uh, wage rates for the 99% and uh, to increase the taxes, to uh, impose special taxes on uh, necessities that our labor needed, from food to uh, energy to uh, anything supplied by the uh, public uh, infrastructure. So you're saying that labor ultimately had to pay off these uh, junk bonds? That was the basis of the uh, International Monetary Fund's development strategy. And I discussed the economics uh, in my history of trade theory, my trade development and foreign debt, which is sort of the academic uh, sister volume to superimperialism, shows how uh, this IMF idea of stabilization was really an anti-labor theory. That's why uh, I never had uh, anything to do with the World Bank, uh, uh, never acted as a consultant for it, as uh, many of my colleagues did. I mean, I, I saw that the, uh, the World Bank and the IMF were, were viciously anti-labor from uh, the very outset, working with uh, domestic elites that were uh, tied to and loyal to the United States. And with regard to these junk bonds, who was it or what entity? Well, they weren't really junk bonds. They were called junk bonds because they were high interest. But they weren't really junk because uh, all these uh, 45% bonds were paid. Uh, everybody thought they were junk because in America, uh, n no American would have paid 45% uh, interest. Any country that really was self-reliant and was uh, promoting its own economic interest would have said, uh, you banks have made bad debts, uh, we're not going to pay. And uh, they would have seized uh, the capital flight of their uh, comprador elites and said, look, uh, uh, this has been a ripoff by uh, our, our corrupt ruling class. You had exactly the same thing happen in Greece uh, a few years ago when Greece's foreign debt was uh, almost all owed to Greek millionaires holding their money in Switzerland. And all of this was published by the IMF, and the IMF said, our loyalty is to the uh, Greek millionaires who have their money in Switzerland. The Greek economy will have to pay. Uh, it's, it's worth wrecking the Greek economy. It's worth uh, forcing uh, uh, emigration. It's worth wiping out uh, Greek industry just so the 1% who are our loyalists can be paid. This is what makes the IMF so vicious an institution. Right. And these loans to foreign countries that were regarded as junk bonds really weren't junk because they were going to be paid. What group uh, was it that jacked up these interest rates to 45 percent? It was the, the, the market did because the market... You had the American banks, American uh, uh, stock brokerage funds. Everybody was looking at the balance of payments of these countries and, and could see this country can't pay its debts. So uh, we're not going to lend any money because if we lend them any money, we don't see how these debts can possibly be paid. No reasonable country uh, would pay debts under these conditions. Just uh, last week, uh, you had the same argument in Puerto Rico, and the Puerto Rican debt was written down. 
to the ability to be paid. Uh, other countries uh, didn't believe that uh, the IMF and the uh, World Bank had such a military stranglehold over uh, Latin American, Asian, and African countries that uh, they could make the countries act in the interests of the United States and the cosmopolitan uh, finance capital instead of in their own national interest. They didn't believe that countries would uh, commit uh, financial suicide just to pay their uh, wealthy 1%. And, of course, they were wrong. Countries were quite happy, quite willing to commit uh, economic suicide because the governments were dictatorships. They were the dictatorships that were propped up by the United States. That's why the CIA has assassination teams and why uh, the CIA uh, was actively supporting uh, these countries uh, to prevent any uh, party coming to power that would have acted in the national interests instead of in uh, the interests of a world division of labor and production that was along the lines that the U.S. Uh, central planners uh, wanted for the world. So under the banner of what they called a free market, you had the World Bank and the IMF engage in central planning uh, of a distinctly anti-labor uh, policy. And instead of calling them uh, third world bonds or junk bonds, you should call them anti-labor bonds, because uh, this was the vehicle for class warfare uh, throughout the world. Well, that makes a lot of sense, Michael, and that answers a lot of the questions I, uh, I've put together uh, to ask you about all of that. Now, you mentioned um, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico writing down debt. Now, I thought these debts couldn't be written down. Well, that's what they all said, and uh, they were trading at about 45 uh, cents on the dollar, showing that they could be written down. And uh, the Wall Street Journal just had a report uh, today, uh, Monday the 17th, saying that, for instance, unsecured suppliers, uh, creditors of uh, Puerto Rico, would only get nine cents on the dollar. The uh, secured bondholders would get maybe 65 cents on the dollar. So uh, the the terms are all written down because it's obvious uh, that Puerto Rico couldn't pay, and the uh, the population was moving out of Puerto Rico in the United States. And uh, if you don't want Puerto Ricans to act the same way Greeks did and uh, leave uh, leave Greece when uh, their industry and country was shut down, then uh, you're going to have to provide some stability, uh, or else you're going to have half of Puerto Rico living in Florida. Now, who wrote down the Puerto Rican debt? There was a group, there was a uh, committee that was uh, appointed that uh, calculated how much can uh, Puerto Rico afford to pay out of its taxes. Uh, Puerto Rico was a dependency. Uh, essentially, it's an economic colony of the United States. It does not have uh, domestic self-reliance. It's uh, the antithesis of a democracy. So it's never been in charge of its own economic policy uh, and essentially had to do whatever the United States uh, told it to do. And obviously there was a reaction and, and saying, look, we don't want to be part of uh, a United States dependency where we don't even have self-governments. And the United States said, we won you fair and square in the, uh, the Spanish-American War, and uh, uh, you're an occupied country, and uh, we're going to keep you as an occupied country. Well, obviously, this was causing uh, political resentment uh, all over the place. 
Now, you've already touched on this, but why has the World Bank, for instance, traditionally been headed by a U.S. Secretary of Defense? Uh, Because its job is to do in the financial sphere what uh, in the past was done by the military sphere. Uh, the purpose of uh, a military conquest is to take control of a foreign economy, uh, to take control of its lands, and to impose tribute uh, on uh, the defeated country. Uh, the genius of the World Bank was to say, we don't have to occupy and take over a country in order to impose tribute, in order to take over its industry and its agriculture and its land. Uh, Instead of bullets, we can use financial manipulation and maneuvering uh, as long as other countries play a game that we can control. uh, Finance can do today what it used to take bombs and uh, loss of life uh, by uh, our soldiers uh, to do. In this case, the loss of life is in the debtor countries. Uh, Population growth uh, shrinks. uh, Suicides go up. Uh, The World Bank is uh, economic warfare that is just as destructive as military warfare. And uh, uh, this is exactly what uh, Russia's President Putin said at the end of the Yeltsin period. He said, American neoliberalism in Russia destroyed more population in Russia than World War II. Uh, And the neoliberalism, which basically is the doctrine of American uh, supremacy and foreign dependency, is uh, the doctrine of the World Bank and the IMF. Why has World Bank policy, since its inception, been to provide loans for countries to devote their land to export crops instead of giving priority to feeding themselves? And if this is the case, why would countries want these loans? Well, the one constant of American foreign policy is uh, to make the buttress of America's trade surplus agricultural goods. Uh, the aim is to uh, make other countries dependent on American grain exports uh, and food exports. So the the first thing that the World Bank has done uh, is uh, not to make any domestic currency loans to help uh, domestic uh, food producers. The World Bank has steered uh, its client countries to produce export crops, namely tropical crops, plantation crops that cannot be grown uh, in the United States just for geographic reasons. And uh, by making export crops, this leads other countries to become dependent on uh, American farm uh, farmers. Uh, the advantage of this to America was shown in the 1950s, right after uh, the Chinese Revolution. Uh, the United States tried to uh, uh, prevent Mao's, the Chinese, from succeeding by imposing grain exports controls against uh, China. Uh, it tried to uh, starve China out by uh, uh, putting sanctions on exports. Canada was the country that broke uh, these export uh, controls and uh, helped uh, feed China. But the idea was if you can make uh, other countries export uh, plantation crops uh, in an oversupply, then uh, prices for cocoa and uh, uh, other tropical products will go down uh, and they won't feed themselves. So in the process, the United States, instead of backing family farms, uh, like the American uh, agricultural policy did, they backed up plantation agriculture, especially in Chile, 
which uh, had uh, the highest natural uh, supply of fertilizer in the world from its guano exports. It, it exported its guano rather than using it as fertilizer domestically. Uh, it had the most unequal land distribution, and yet it didn't grow its own uh, grain or food crops. It was completely dependent on the United States for this, and it paid by exporting copper and uh, uh, various other uh, guano, various other, other products. So the idea was to create interdependency. That was the euphemism for foreign dependency on the United States. It was a one-way dependency. Uh, the United States has always aimed at being self-sufficient in its essentials so that no other country could pull the plug on our economy and say, we're going to uh, starve you by not feeding you, because Americans can feed themselves. Uh, other countries can't say, we're going to let you freeze in the dark uh, by not sending you oil, because America is independent in oil. But America can use the oil uh, control to make other countries uh, freeze in the dark, and it can starve other countries. So the idea is to give the United States control of all of the key connections, interconnections of other economies, uh, without uh, letting any country uh, control something that is vital to the working of the American economy. So there's a double standard here. Uh, the United States tells other countries, don't do as we do, do as we say, not as we do. And the only way it can enforce this is by interfering in the politics of these countries, as it has interfered in Latin America, always pushing uh, the right wing. For instance, uh, when Hillary and the State Department uh, overthrew uh, the Honduras uh, reformer who wanted to uh, undertake land reform and feed uh, the Hondurans, uh, Hillary said, this person has to go. He's bad for American agriculture. You know, we have to have a coup d'etat. And uh, that's why there are so many Hondurans trying to get into the United States now, because they can't live in their own country. The effect in every uh, American coup has been uh, the same as it's been in Syria uh, and Iraq. Uh, it's to force a exodus of people who no longer can make a living. Uh, in the country and can no longer make a living under the brutal dictatorships uh, that are supported by the United States to enforce this uh, international dependency system. Right. So then when I asked you why would countries want these loans, I guess what you're saying is, well, they wouldn't. And that's why the that's U.S. Right. controls these countries politically. That's a concise way of putting it, Bonnie. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, the IMF and World Bank, Partners in Backwardness. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Why are World Bank loans only in foreign currency and not in the domestic currency of the country to which it is lending? Well, that's the good point. Uh, a basic principle of any uh, debtor or any loan should be no country should borrow in a foreign currency because it can always pay the loans in its own currency, but uh, there's no way that it can print the dollars uh, or uh, euros to pay loans denominated in dollars, euros, or Swiss francs. Uh, so the idea of making uh, the dollar the central is that other countries have to somehow go through the U.S. banking system. So if a country uh, decides to uh, go its own way, for instance, as Iran did in 1953, 
when uh, it wanted to uh, uh, take over its oil industry from British Petroleum, uh, Anglo-Iranian oil, as I think it was called back then, uh, the United States can uh, simply uh, interfere uh, and, and overthrow it. The idea is to be able to uh, to use the banking system as the financial interconnections to stop payments. For instance, uh, finally, uh, after America installed the Shah's dictatorship, uh, they were overthrown by Khomeini, and uh, Iran uh, had run up under the Shah a U.S. dollar debt. Uh, it had uh, plenty of uh, dollars. Uh, it held the dollars through, I think, Chase Manhattan was its paying agent. And so when its uh, debt was quarterly or uh, annual uh, debt payment was due, uh, it told uh, Chase, won't you uh, please pay the bondholders with our money? Here's the money. Pay it. And Chase simply refused to. Uh, it took orders from the State Department or the Defense Department, I don't know what, and it refused to pay. And once uh, it did not pay, all uh, the American allies said, Iran is in default. We now want the entire debt paid uh, because that's the debt that our uh, puppet, uh, the Shah of Iran, signed. Uh, now it was all the money. And America simply grabbed all the money that Iran had in any U.S. bank or anywhere in the United States and began to grab all of its property abroad. This is the money that uh, under the agreement of uh, 2016 was finally returned uh, to Iran without interest, but America was able to to grab all of Iran's foreign exchange just by uh, the banks uh, interfering. And the uh, CAA has bragged, we can do the same thing uh, with Russia. If, if Russia does something that we don't like, we can uh, use the SWIFT uh, bank payment system to uh, suddenly uh, exclude Russia from it. So somehow uh, the Russian banks and the Russian uh, people and the Russian industry won't be able to make payments to each other because they won't be able to use the SWIFT. So uh, uh, the first thing that this prompted uh, Russia to do was to create its own uh, bank transfer system. And this is leading other countries from China, Russia, India, Pakistan to de-dollarize. I was going to ask you why uh, would loans in a country's domestic currency be preferable to the country taking out a loan in a foreign currency? But I guess you've already explained that if they took out a loan in a domestic currency, then they would be able to repay it. Uh, yes. Whereas, I guess, a loan in a foreign currency would cripple them. Yes, you can't create the money, especially if you're running a balance of payments deficit. And if, uh, uh, if U.S. foreign policy can force you into a payments deficit by either uh, having someone like George Soros make a run on your currency, uh, look at the Asia crisis in 1997. Uh, essentially, a lot of Wall Street uh, funds got together and just uh, bet against the foreign currencies, drove them way down, and then used the money to pick up uh, industry cheap in uh, Korea, uh, all sorts of Asian countries. The attempt was to do that in Russia. The only country that was able to avoid all of this was Malaysia under Mohamed Mahathir. And uh, he used capital controls. And uh, that led the United States to oppose uh, uh, Mr. Mahathir as much as it could. But uh, uh, Malaysia was uh, able to avoid all of this, and uh, uh, essentially it's a uh, object lesson in how to uh, uh, prevent a currency flight. 
But in the case of Latin America and other uh, countries, so much of their foreign debt is really held by their own ruling class. Uh, even though it's denominated in dollars, uh, Americans don't owe the bulk of this debt. It's really their own ruling class. But instead of uh, owing the debt uh, domestically, essentially uh, the deal is the IMF and World Bank will dictate economic tax policy to Latin America. They will untax wealth. Uh, and only tax labor so that the wealthy people have an economic surplus. They do what uh, Russian kleptocrats did in the 1990s. They move uh, their money abroad into hard currency areas, uh, such as the United States, or they keep it in dollars, uh, even if it's in an uh, offshore banking center. And uh, essentially, they uh, take take their money out of the country instead of using uh, the economic surplus to reinvest and to help the country uh, catch up by investing in becoming independent uh, agriculturally, uh, in terms of energy, uh, financially, and in other ways. You say that, uh, quote, while U.S. agricultural protectionism has been built into the post-war global system at its inception— Foreign protectionism is to be nipped in the bud. How has U.S. agricultural protectionism been built into the post-war global system? Well, during uh, Franklin Roosevelt's term in the 1930s, uh, the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933 uh, called for uh, price supports to uh, support the price of American crops uh, so that farmers could have enough money to invest not only in plant equipment, but in seeds. The Agriculture Department was a wonderful uh, department in spurring new seed varieties, agricultural extension services, marketing services, banking services, and essentially uh, provided state support so that productivity in American agriculture from the 1930s to 50s was higher over a prolonged period than that of any other industry in world history. It was amazing agricultural productivity uh, as a result. The United States, under the World Trade Organization, said uh, all countries have to promote free trade and cannot have government support except for countries that already have it, and we're the only country that already has it. So essentially, that's what's called grandfathering in uh, the existing status quo. So the Americans said, we already have this program on the books, so we can do it, but no other country can succeed in agriculture in the way that we have done. You must keep your agriculture backward, uh, except for the plantation crops and growing crops that we can't grow in the United States. And uh, that's what is so basically evil about uh, the World Bank's uh, development plan and why uh, anybody who has worked for the World Bank should uh, just be shunned by moral people. According to your book, quote, domestic currency is needed to provide price supports and agricultural extension services, such as has made U.S. agriculture so productive. Why can't infrastructure costs be subsidized to keep down the economy's overall cost structure if IMF loans are made in foreign currency? Well, that's the point. If you're a farmer in uh, Brazil or Argentina or Chile, uh, you're doing business in domestic currency. And it doesn't help if somebody gives you dollars 
because uh, uh, all of your expenses are in domestic currency. So if uh, the World Bank and the IMF can prevent countries from making any domestic currency support, that means they're not able to support their agriculture. They're not able to support agricultural services. They're not able to give uh, price supports. They're not able to uh, have uh, government uh, marketing services for uh, the local agriculture. So uh, essentially, the, the American idea is to, America is a mixed economy where our government has always subsidized uh, capital formation in agricultural and industry, and it insists that other countries are socialist or communist if they do what the United States is doing and use their government to support the economy. So it's a, it's a double standard. Obviously, nobody calls America a socialist or communist country for supporting its farmers, but other countries are called uh, socialist or communist, and uh, they are overthrown violently uh, if uh, they attempt uh, land reform or uh, attempt to uh, feed themselves. This is what uh, the Catholic Church's liberation theology was all about. They uh, backed land reform and they backed agricultural uh, self-sufficiency in food, uh, realizing that if you're going to support population growth, you have to support the means to uh, feed the population. And that's why uh, the United States uh, focused its assassination teams on uh, uh, priests and nuns uh, in Latin America. In uh, Guatemala and uh, Central America, uh, it focused uh, most of the violence was against the Catholic Church for uh, trying to promote domestic uh, uh, self-sufficiency. Well, if a country takes out an IMF loan, and they're obviously going to take it out in dollars, okay, why can't they take the dollars and convert them into domestic currency to support domestic infrastructure costs? You, you don't need a dollar loan to do that. All you uh, the, the, Now we're getting into MMT. Uh, any country can create its own domestic currency. You don't need a dollar, dollars to create domestic currency. There's no, no reason to borrow in dollars to create your own currency. You, you can print it yourself or create it on your computers. Well, exactly. Well, that's, why borrow dollars at all? That's exactly right. Well, then why don't these countries then uh, print up their own domestic currency? They don't want to be assassinated. They don't want to be killed. They don't want their families to be kidnapped. Nowhere is the violence... Uh, of American foreign policy more pronounced than in finance, because finance is the most militarized uh, uh, field of all. Uh, if you look at the head of the people who were in charge of foreign central banks, they've almost all been educated uh, in the United States and essentially brainwashed. It's the mentality of foreign central bankers. Uh, and the people who are promoted are people who feel personally loyal uh, to the United States because they know that that's uh, uh, how to get ahead. Essentially, they're opportunists working against the interests of their own country, uh, which is why you don't have socialist central bankers uh, abroad. Uh, and you won't have socialist central bankers as long as central banks are dominated by uh, the International Monetary Fund and the uh, Bank for International Settlements. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The IMF and World Bank, Partners in Backwardness. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
Right. So we're right back to the main point here is that the control is by political means and they control the politics and the uh, uh, the power structure in these countries so that they don't rebel. That's right. When you have a dysfunctional economic theory that is destructive uh, of an economy instead of productive, this is never an accident. It is always the result of uh, uh, junk economics and dependency economics being sponsored uh, with a lot of money. And uh, I've talked to people at the U.S. Treasury and asked this very question. Why is it that they all end up uh, uh, following the United States and the Treasury uh, officials have said, we simply buy them off. We simply pay them, pay them, and they do it for the money. So you don't need to kill them. All you need to do is uh, find people corrupt enough and opportunist enough to know where the money is, and you buy them off. You write that by following U.S. advice, countries have left themselves open to food blackmail. What is food blackmail? That means that if uh, if you uh, pursue a foreign policy that we don't like, for instance, if you trade with Iran that we're trying to smash up to grab its oil, uh, we'll simply uh, impose sanctions against uh, food exports to you. We won't sell you any food, and you can starve. And because you've followed uh, World Bank advice and not grown your own food, uh, you will starve because you're dependent on us, the United States, and on our free world allies. Uh, Canada will no longer follow its own policy independently of the United States, as it did with China in the 1950s when it sold grain to China. Now you have uh, Canada and uh, Europe basically falling in line with uh, the U.S. policy, uh, is the world sort of fracturing into uh, different geographic regions. You write that World Bank administrators demand that loan recipients pursue a policy of economic dependency, above all, on the United States as food supplier. Was this done to support U.S. agriculture and Obviously, uh, it, it is, but were there other reasons as well? Uh, certainly, the agricultural lobby was critical in all of this, uh, and I'm not sure at what point this became thoroughly conscious. I knew some of the World Bank planners, and, and they all had no anticipation that this dependency would be the result. They all believed uh, the free trade uh, junk economics that's taught uh, in the schools economics departments, and for which Nobel Prizes are awarded. They just didn't think. Uh, if, if they did think, they wouldn't be economists. So uh, when we're dealing with economists uh, and planners, we're dealing with tunnel-visioned people who uh, have stayed in a discipline uh, despite its unreality because they sort of uh, think that abstractly it all makes sense, and uh, they're not reality-grounded. There's something autistic uh, about uh, most economists, which is why the French had their uh, non-autistic economic site uh, for many years. So it's a mentality at work, a mentality that every country should produce what it's best at, not realizing that, wait a minute, uh, a country also has to uh, be self-sufficient in essentials, otherwise we're in a real world of uh, uh, military and uh, economic uh, warfare. Why does the World Bank prefer the perpetration of world poverty 
rather than the development of adequate overseas capacity to feed the peoples of developing countries. Uh, world poverty is its solution. It's not a problem to the World Bank. Uh, it looks at world poverty as low-priced labor creating a competitive advantage for countries that produce labor-intensive goods. So poverty for the World Bank and for the IMF is an economic solution, and that's built into the IMF's models that I discuss, both there and in my trade development and foreign debt book. Uh, poverty is to them the solution. Uh, it means low-priced labor, and low-priced labor means higher profits for companies, uh, especially companies that are bought out by international investors, uh, such as U.S., British, and European uh, investors. So it's part of the class war. That's what the class war is all about, profits versus, <laughs> versus poverty. In general, then, what is U.S. food imperialism? How would you characterize it? It's making America the producer of essential foods and other countries uh, producing inessential uh, plantation crops, but remaining dependent on the United States for grain, soybeans, and basic food crops. Does World Bank lending encourage land reform in former colonies? No. Uh, if there is land reform, the CIA uh, sends its assassination teams in, and uh, uh, you have mass murder, as you had in Guatemala, Ecuador, Central America, Colombia. The World Bank is absolutely committed against uh, land reform. Does the World Bank insist on client governments privatizing their public domain? And if so, why and what is the effect? Uh, yes, it, it, it does insist on in privatization. It pretends that this is efficient, but what it does is uh, privatize natural monopolies, the electrical system, the water system, uh, the things that people need, and uh, foreigners take over, uh, essentially finance them with foreign debt, build the foreign debt into the cost structure, and uh, vastly raise uh, the cost of uh, living and doing business in these countries, and thereby crippling them economically. Uh, the effect of World Bank planning is to cripple any country economically so that it cannot compete with the United States and its European allies. Would you say, then, that it is mainly America that has been aided, not foreign economies that borrow from the World Bank? <laughs> That's why the United States is the only country with veto power in the IMF and World Bank. That, uh, that's why they have veto power, to make sure that what you just described is exactly what happens. Why do World Bank programs accelerate the exploitation of mineral deposits for use by other nations? Because uh, if you look at what the World Bank loans are for, most of them are for... Uh, transportation, uh, roads, uh, harbor development, uh, the infrastructure that's needed for uh, exporting these uh, minerals. So the World Bank doesn't make loans for projects that help the country develop in its own currency by making only foreign currency loans, by making only loans in dollars or maybe euros now, the World Bank uh, says, well, you've borrowed this foreign currency, therefore you have to repay by the, the projects that we fund have to generate foreign currency. And the only way you can repay in dollars 
the dollars that we've uh, uh, paid you to pay uh, the American uh, engineering firms that have built your dams and built your infrastructure is to uh, export uh, to earn enough dollars to pay us back for the money that we've lent. Uh, this is why this is what Perkins' book is all about. You know, saying that he finally realized that uh, what his job was is to get uh, countries to uh, invest, to borrow dollars, to build huge projects uh, that really couldn't be repaid and could only be repaid by the country exporting even more and even more, which required breaking its labor unions and uh, lowering wages so that it could afford to be competitive. And the race to the bottom that uh, the World Bank and the IMF are encouraging. And you point out also in superimperialism that mineral resources represent diminishing assets so that these countries that are exporting uh, mineral resources are being depleted while the importing countries aren't. That's right. I mean, they'll end up like Canada. The end result of Canadian development is going to be a big hole in the ground. You've dug up all your minerals, and in the end, all you have is a hole in the ground. And a lot of uh, the refuge and the pollution that uh, all of the mining uh, slag and uh, what Marx called the excrements of production end up uh, uh, with. So, yes, it's, it's not a, a sustainable development. Uh, the, the World Bank uh, says only the United States can pursue sustainable development. So, naturally, they call the program sustainable development, but what they mean sustainable development only for the United States, not for the World Bank's client countries. When super-imperialism, the economic strategy of American empire, was originally published in 1972... How was it received? Uh, Very positively. It really uh, enabled my career to take off. I received a phone call a month later uh, by someone from the Bank of Montreal saying they had just made $240 million on the last paragraph of my book. What would it uh, cost to have me come up and uh, uh, give a lecture? And so I began uh, lecturing once a month at $3,500 a day, moving up to $6,500 a day, and became the highest paid uh, daily per diem economist on Wall Street for quite a few years. Uh, I was immediately hired by the uh, Hudson Institute uh, to explain uh, super-imperialism to uh, the Defense Department that said it did not understand how imperialism had uh, actually been able to run rings around European imperialism, and they uh, gave the Institute a $85,000 grant to have me uh, go to uh, the White House in Washington to explain to them how American imperialism worked, and the Americans used it as a how-to-do-it book. Uh, The socialist, uh, who I expected to have a response, uh, decided to talk about other uh, topics than economic topics, and uh, not much happened, so much to my surprise, uh, it became uh, a how-to-do-it book for imperialists. It was translated by the, uh, I think, nephew of the Emperor of Japan into Japanese. Uh, he then wrote me that the United States opposed the book being translated into Japanese. It later was translated. Uh, it was received very positively in China, uh, where I think it sold more copies in China than any other country. Uh, it was translated into Spanish. 
and uh, most recently it was translated into German, and uh, German officials uh, have asked me to come and discuss it with them. So the book has uh, been accepted uh, all over the world as uh, this is how the system works. Now, in closing, then, do you really think that the U.S. government officials and others didn't understand how their own system worked? They might not have understood in 1944 that this was going to be the uh, consequence, but uh, by the time 50 years went by, you had an organization called 50 Years is Enough. Uh, and by that time, anybody uh, should have understood. By the time uh, Joe Stiglitz became the uh, chief economist for the World Bank, there's no excuse for him not understanding how the system worked. And finally, uh, he uh, was amazed to find that indeed uh, the system didn't work and uh, resigned. But uh, he should have known at the very beginning, what it was all about. If he didn't understand how it was until he actually went to work there, you can understand how hard it is for most uh, academics to get through the uh, vocabulary of junk economics, uh, the patter talk of free trade and free markets, uh, to understand how uh, the system actually is exploitative and destructive. Michael Hudson, thank you very much. It's really good to be here, Bonnie. I'm glad you ask uh, questions like these. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been the IMF and World Bank, Partners in Backwardness. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst, and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri-Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank, the subject of today's broadcast, is posted in PDF format on his website at michael-hudson.com. That's michael-hudson.com. He is also author of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, which is the academic sister volume to super-imperialism. Dr. Hudson acts as an economic advisor to governments worldwide on finance and tax law. Visit his website at michael-hudson.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you see-